Welcome to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. I'm John Shaw, the director of the Institute. In Simon Cast, we aim to keep the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well through wide ranging civil conversations. Today, we're playing a conversation we had in March of 2021 with historian and Yale professor Elizabeth Hinton. We had just spoken to her before the release of her latest book, America on Fire. So you'll notice us talking about that book in the future tense, but it's out now on bookshelves. After you hear this conversation with Professor Hinton, you'll definitely want to pick it up. And today, we're very privileged to be joined by Elizabeth Hinton, professor at Yale University. Elizabeth is from Ann Arbor went to graduate school, uh, went to undergrad at NYU, graduate school at Columbia. Uh, She's taught at the University of Michigan, at Harvard and Yale. Uh, She's known as an amazing researcher, a great uh, writer and a wonderful teacher. I've read stories of long lines going out her door during a non-COVID time. So it's just every place she's gone has been just an amazing and well-respected teacher. She's also a great writer. She wrote a book in 2016 called um, From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime, The Making of Mass Incarceration in America, and is coming out with a book in about a month called um, America on Fire, The Untold Story of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. I actually have a copy of it right here. I uh, read the galleys. It's an amazing book that will really challenge our perceptions of American history, certainly recent American history. And for particularly for those of us in Southern Illinois right now or in Illinois, um, Illinois looms large in this book in ways that we don't uh, probably feel terribly proud about, but it gives us, this book gives us some really important insights into uh, uh, the, the, really the history of, of Illinois in the last half century. So with that, I wanna say hello to Elizabeth. Hi, John, thank you so much for that incredibly generous introduction and for having me and to the audience for uh, tuning in. Great, great. Well, Elizabeth, let's start out at sort of the beginning. You grew up in Ann Arbor. And as I read about you, you seem to have an amazing family. Your mom is a a therapist and a writer. Your dad played pro football, was an art professor at the University of Michigan. I think you have two siblings. Tell us about growing up in Ann Arbor and particularly as it's sort of your the evolution of your intellectual interests. Yeah, so um, Ann Arbor was a really, I think, important site for me in terms of understanding the world and also understanding the the kind of limitations of um, of liberal social policy. I mean, for one, you know, I'm from a um, I'm biracial and um, come from a mixed race family. My my dad's family. Uh, was mostly, and most of his family was located in Saginaw, Michigan, which was about an hour and a half away, about um, 40 minutes north of Flint, Michigan, which more people are familiar with, but another auto town. So that side of the family, um, you know, kind of a strong Michigan story of auto workers and a migration in the post-war period from Georgia. Um, And my dad, because of his football skills, was able to get out, one of the only people in his family uh, who did and received a full scholarship to the University of Iowa. And so that really changed um, the trajectory of of my immediate family and and his branch of the family. So it was really clear to me growing up when we would go to visit my family in in Saginaw that just the differences between the resources that I had access to in Ann Arbor and the resources that I had access to as the child of you know, to um, parents who had, you know, gone up to receive graduate level education in a college town versus Saginaw, which, you know, I was born in the mid 80s, by the 80s and 90s, you know, really deteriorated alongside plant closings. And of course, um, you know, increasing poverty and, and crack and drug abuse. And so this really kind of shaped my understanding of the world, but also inequality and the ways in which resources and material conditions really um, can shape outcomes for generations. And I, I think, you know, Ann Arbor is as a college town, it's it's very proud of itself for being this kind of like liberal bastion and safe space. But for me, I think especially, you know, growing up as a, um, as a mixed kid in Ann Arbor, I found it to be, you know, a deeply, deeply racist place in a number of ways. And so, you know, even, even as it was seen as a, great liberal space that had in within the public schools a really, really deep what people were saying then um, achievement gap. And now I think we're, we're thinking about it more as an opportunity gap between black and white students. Uh, Ann Arbor is an extremely segregated city. 
uh, with a very, very small black middle class. And, um, and, you know, despite all of the kind of like rhetoric towards, <laughs> you know, inclusion and, 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 and diversity and celebrating difference um, in practice, we were seeing, you know, a, a horrible tracking system within the Ann Arbor public schools and, um, you know, deep, deep poverty within segregated black communities there, um, despite the affluence in the area. And so I think that this, you know, the, the kind of difference between the rhetoric and the reality of liberal policy um, and also the, you know, the difference between my upbringing in Ann Arbor versus Saginaw really shaped the, my own interests and my own set of historical questions. And also, I think, my critique of the limits of liberal social policy that really comes through in my, um, in my first book when I'm discussing the war on poverty and the Johnson administration. I think a lot of that came from my own background growing up in, in Ann Arbor. And then you studied historical sociology um, at uh, NYU and particularly looking at African-Americans and mass incarceration. Is that sort of the essence of what your yeah. focus was? So I, I wasn't as interested in, at NYU. I mostly, you know, I came from this kind of uh, a real black studies tradition that engaged deeply with, um, with the black radical con con uh, tradition. I worked with, um, this was when Robin D.G. Kelly, um, you know, famed historian of the, of the black freedom struggle and resistance and racial capitalism was teaching at NYU. When I researched for him, I was very, very influenced um, by his work. And I went to this school at NYU called the Gallatin School of Individualized Study, where you could kind of create your own major. And I was really interested in the history of black social movements and, and the history and, and, and questions about, you know, how, um, how social change is created um, in the context of, again, these, these kind of larger questions about how, trying to understand how the inequalities in the U.S. and the Caribbean, I was in in some ways much more transnationally focused in um, in, in undergrad than a lot of my work in my historical work in graduate school has been. But you know, how how did we kind of get these racial divisions and racial inequalities that we see in our society, and how did people resist um, resist those conditions and build really vibrant social movements to challenge them? And then your mom is a therapist and a writer and actually had, had written a book on a, one of the kind of notorious gangs in L.A., the Crips. And, and as I understood it, maybe in an earlier phase in a career as a social worker, had done some work with prisoners and, and so forth. Did that inform your development or? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, these issues have had always been it did. And I think that that understanding, you know, my mom's work, um, she co-authored uh, a memoir with Colton Simpson, who was a member of the, the Crips in, um, in Los Angeles. And I think that um, meeting Colton kind of expanded, um, you know, my understanding of gang violence in the, in the late 20th century. But, you know, issues of, of crime and punishment and prisons were always, Something that I was fascinated by and um, and were kind of hotly debated in my household. I mean, in part because, you know, especially during the 90s, I had family members um, who were getting arrested and going to prison. So this is something that was playing out in my family. Um, and I was very, uh, you know, I was kind of coming of age into my adolescence during the OJ trial. And I was just absolutely gripped um, by the OJ trial as well and, and, and kind of the criminal justice system in general. And, and I remember like me and my dad, my dad watched a lot of it and we, we watched it and talked about it in my house. And, um, you know, I was debating at that point too. I mean, this goes back to the kind of landscape of Ann Arbor, but I would get into debates with my schoolmates in, in, in middle school and elementary school about black crime. You know, people would make comments about, uh, that, 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 that rested on sets of assumptions about black people being inherently violent and criminal. And I would always kind of push back on that. And, and, you know, that pushing back came from discussions at the dinner table with my parents. And, um, you know, my mom had worked in the 1970s in women's prisons in, in Michigan and, um, and, you know, continued to talk about that. And, and those experience, my dad was part of the university of Michigan has a really vibrant, um, prisoners arts program that my dad was, you know, as a professor at the art school was involved with. So, 
you know, these were issues that were always uh, really important to my to my family. And, and I think that that the fact that, you know, they were discussed frequently during my childhood, um, you know, helped me understand why they're important. And when my family members started getting incarcerated, um, you know, even though I felt there was a degree of shame that I felt about that, I, I kind of under, I, I kind of understood it or knew that it was related to something that was that was larger than 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 the charges that they were arrested for. Well, in a profile I read of you, uh, describes a really kind of a transformative experience. I think it was 2005, where maybe you and your mom had gone to California to visit a relative in prison. And just, I mean, it seemed like, you know, this brutal trip, you flew to Reno, like a five hour drive, you go to this awful prison, you see the racial composition of the prison, you see the dynamic of prisoners' families. And, and at one point, you just sort of said, my God, how did we get to this place? Talk about that experience is kind of triggering. Yeah, so this was in, uh, this was in 2005, 2006. And um, this was before, you know, mass incarceration was the, the kind of buzzword that it is now. This is before we were really talking about mass incarceration. And I will say, I think that, you know, I think that moment really began in terms of like a public dialogue about the issue with Michelle Alexander's groundbreaking book, The New Jim Crow. When that was released in 2010, I think that it just, it, it opened up new conversations about, you know, the, 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 the design of these policies and the ways that, um, that, that racism is a kind of like inherent part of, of, um, of crime control policies in the criminal legal system in the US. So, this was a couple of years before that when I, I don't think that we had a sense of the scale or or really were talking about the conditions in prison. And so, you know, when when I when I first uh, went to High Desert State Prison in Susanville, California, and, you know, you go through the process where you're, um, you're you know, the, the guards criminalize family members and visitors themselves. So you go, you know, you go through that stepping into the visiting room, I mean, I was just so struck by the generations of mostly um, black and brown men with um, their wives and young children who were behind bars. And it was just, it was just to, to actually, you know, be in the room, to be there with family, to be unable to, um, you know, interact normally, to be able to hug <laughs> and touch. Um, you know, you can only do that at the beginning of the visit and at the end. Um, you know, all of these things, I, I just leaving th that experience made me, I think, even more angry and, and to want to understand how we got here. You know, how did we get to, to these generations of black and brown men uh, being confined in, in far away remote places um, in, in, these, in these little rural, rural prison towns? Um, and, you know, the, that to me, that seemed like even though at the time historians weren't asking these questions, to me, that seemed like a historical question and not one that was, you know, about the 1990s or about, you know, the, I think, what, what is still a, a really dominant interpretation, which is that, you know, we, we, black and brown people are disproportionately incarcerated because they're, you know, they're, they're naturally more violent. And so this reflects the, that fact and they're getting arrested more frequently and they go to prison. Like, like it's somehow part of the natural order instead of being, the outcome of a historical process. And so I wanted to explore that and to try to explain how this happened in the United States in the land of the free. Well, let's, I mean, let's go to the, the yeah, first book from, from the war on poverty to the war on crime. And, and I think the war on poverty is typically dated to LBJ's uh, first, uh, you know, his uh, State of the Union address, I think in January 64, just about a month after JFK was killed. And yet the war on crime begins about a year later. So, you know, so many questions flow from that. Did they really give it a shot? How did we get diverted from this ambitious and seemingly idealistic war on poverty to this pretty brutal war on crime? What happened? That's a great question. And it's a tough one. And it's one that was surprising to me when I began this research. So, you know, leaving high desert and starting to think about what a research project would look like, I did not expect that the origins of that visiting room um, were in were, were to be found in the Johnson or Kennedy even administrations were to be found in the 1960s, and so that's the big irony that you know the, the moment at the height of the civil rights revolution and progressive social change 
we also get this war on crime that Johnson declared, which, which people weren't, you know, when I began this research, people weren't uh, really talking about at all. The fact that, you know, Johnson, Lyndon Johnson broke with the previous 200 years of American history and established for the first time a role for the federal government in local police operations and in prisons and court systems. Um, and so, you know, kind of wrestling with that um, is something that, uh, that question is, is, is really at the, at the heart of from the war on poverty to the war on crime. So, so the question is why? I mean, my sense, and this is in some ways related to my second book, right? Um, well, okay, let, let's step back. There's a long trajectory in American history that every time um, rights are extended to people, that the bounds of citizenship expand, particularly for African-Americans, there's a, there's a subsequent clamp down and new criminal laws and new forms of incarceration emerge. So we see this immediately after emancipation, civil war is fought, 4 million slaves are freed and almost immediately Southern states begin to enact um, black codes, you know, basically leading to the arrest of newly freed people on seemingly arbitrary charges like not being employed by a white person um, and, and bringing them into um, exploiting the loophole in the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery except for punishment of a crime and bringing people into the emerging convict lease system, which was, you know, essentially the labor regime of the, you know, uh, developed by the new South industrialists to, 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 to modernize the South at, after the fall of slavery. And so this, this leads to kind of the first, a, a much smaller scale, but the first mass incarceration in America immediately after slavery. You flash forward a hundred years later, you know, 1965, 1964, we had the Voting Rights Act, 1965, Johnson calls the war on crime one week before sending the Voting Rights Act to Congress, which completes his civil rights package. So again, you know, we're seeing this, the fall of Jim Crow, the expand, you know, the, the expansion of the bounds of citizenship, and then a new war on crime. So that, so in part, it reflects this kind of larger tendency um, in U.S. history. I think the other, you know, the other response is, is a kind of carrot and stick approach um, that both the Kennedy and Johnson administration took to um, to deal with the demographic changes that occurred in the post-war period, the fact that many cities were getting um, blacker, that, you know, city DC had come into a black majority, cities like Detroit and, um, and Cincinnati, you know, were, were really, were coming into a third or, or close to black majorities and policymakers said, okay, wow, there are all these black people in cities, middle-class and white people have left to the suburbs. There are all these black youth, there aren't jobs for them. What are we going to do? We need some kind of intervention because they're going to explode. Um, you know, the officials in the Kennedy, Kennedy administration called black youth social, social dynamite in the early 60s. This was, you know, before the era of rebellion because of that kind of fear of explosion. And so, you know, both administrations developed a kind of social welfare and punitive intervention uh, to, to figure out how to, to manage this problem. And for, you know, in the Kennedy administration, that was a comprehensive juvenile delinquency program that ended up being kind of the blueprint for the war on poverty. So during Kennedy, the early Head Start programs, the early remedial education programs were part of a juvenile delinquency program, which is really, you know, interesting now when thinking about how limited our ideas of crime prevention are, um, you know, the Kennedy administration's crime prevention program was, was an attack on poverty. It said, okay, the root causes of crime are social conditions. This is what, um, you know, Lloyd o Olin and Richard Cloward and social scientists who were influential in the Kennedy administration believed. And they said, okay, you know, let's, let's, if we want to control crime, we've got to, you know, uh, invest resources into communities. We've got to give people job opportunities. So Johnson took that aspect of the of the Kennedy juvenile delinquency program and made it into the war on poverty. And then he launched a separate war on crime, which really in the early years was about militarizing local police forces um, in the event of a rebellion, um, in the event that black people, you know, the social dynamite would explode and 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 start, you know, attacking police officers and looting stores and and um, and setting fires. And you know, it's important that he that Johnson declares the war on crime one year, you know, in the spring, um, a year after the the kind of first uh, set of social dynamite exploding in the summer of '64, beginning in Harlem, and 
Um, the last thing I'll say about this is that, you know, when after um, in Ferguson, after the um, uprisings surrounding Michael Brown's uh, killing by Ferguson police, a Ferguson police officer, you know, we saw all of these like tanks and armored vehicles and, you know, heavily dressed and militarized police officers on the scene. And there's like kind of the sense like, whoa, I mean, that was another like, how did this how did this happen? How, you know, how are these police forces so militarized? And a lot of people said, you know, this is because of the technology transfers that began in the war on terror. And this is a 21st century thing. But again, you know, we have to understand that process. We have to go back to the 60s because to fight urban rebellion at home, Johnson calls the war on crime, creates this new role for the federal government and new investments in local police. Initially, the war on crime was really, really focused on, um, on, 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 um, enhancing the kind of weapons arsenal and, and surveillance capabilities and, and, and sheer number of urban police officers. Um, and a, an important component of that was technology transfers from, uh, you know, weapons that were being used in Vietnam and, and interventions in, in, in the Dominican Republic to, you know, the LAPD, the NYPD, Chicago PD, and other um, big city police forces. Well, let's. Let, this is kind of a good context to, to come to your current book because it. Um, I'd, I'd like to talk, you know, in a, in a few minutes about Illinois um, and a couple of communities in particular. But the, the kind of let's look at the kind of the broader argument. And I want to just read a couple sentences you wrote and just have you kind of expand on it. You say between 1964 and 1972, but especially between 68 and 72, the United States endured internal violence on a scale not seen since the Civil War every major urban center burned during, these eight, during those eight years. And then a little bit further, you say, the so-called urban riots from the 1960s to the present can only be properly understood as rebellions. These events did not represent a wave of criminality, but a sustained insurgency. The violence was in response to movements, to moments of tangible racism, almost always taking the form of a police encounter Yet tens of thousands of black Americans who participated in this collective violence were not rebelling just against police brutality. They were also rebelling against a broader system that entrenched unequal conditions and anti-black violence over generations. Sorry to read so much, but it's yeah, wonderfully no. written and just so go from there. Okay, so let me, I'm gonna try to break, I'm gonna try to break this up and that's such an important question. So if I end up missing anything, um, please you know, keep on nudging me. So. So first let's talk about just like the sheer, um, what you opened with, which is the the kind of the sheer extent of rebellion. And, and one thing that I'm, I'm really proud of in the book is, um, is so so my, my numbers are, are based on data that uh, the political scientist Christian Davenport um, at the Radical Information Project, the University of Michigan Center for Political Studies uh, gathered based on this amazing archive from the Lemberg Center for the Study of Violence that formed immediately after John F. Kennedy's uh, assassination to, to kind of just basically chart um, and record the extent of violence in the US. And so, you know, the, the Lemberg Center in that archive, it's not just um, black rebellion, but it's all, it's student revolts, it's labor, it's labor strife, but it's all these news clippings from local papers that um, we really couldn't get anywhere else. And so um, Christian, you know, happened to, come into the archive in his possession and began to use and began to, to quantify, um, you know, not just black rebellions, but all of this, this kind of violence. The Lemberg Center um, did this tracking from uh, the, from the early sixties to, uh, to 72. So, um, you know, one thing that, that again, you know, another kind of like surprise when I began doing this research is just, is just how much, you know, the, the narrative was, and this is something that I, um, that you know, I kind of was guilty of um, advancing in my first book is that you know, the the rebellion you know sixty four happens the rebellions peak with Detroit and Newark in sixty seven Martin Luther King is assassination assassinated there's another wave and then they just kind of stopped um, and uh, and the, the Lemberg Center data shows that and you know that they did in fact did not stop in sixty eight in fact they grew much more prevalent so we go from um, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but you'll see in, in the book. If, if I have a few, Elizabeth, I mean, it goes yeah. from like 504 and 68 to 614 and 69, 630 and 70, 
319 and 71. Right. So, so instead of decreasing, you know, well into the, the late sixties and early seventies, these incidents are actually increasing. And, um, and it's an, as I see it, it's in direct response to, you know, I mentioned, so Johnson calls the war on crime in 65, and there's like a smaller kind of experimental program that, that begins these technology transfers and begins these pilot programs that militarize police and improve police patrol um, capabilities until 1968 when we get the first major piece of, um, of law enforcement legislation that, that, that really kind of starts the war on crime on a national scale. And so, you know, in many ways I saw this kind of increase in rebellion as being in direct response, as being an important measure of community response to the war on crime um, itself. And so, you know, I, I, I mentioned the, the, the kind of data because, you know, without the Lemberg archive and without Christian Davenport's work on this, um, you know, I wouldn't have been able to, to one, you know, find the, the, the local newspapers clippings to be able to access these stories. Like the Peoria story, I wouldn't have, that was in Lemberg and I wouldn't have, it would have been nearly impossible to find um, unless I was, you know, got a hunch or a lead from somebody. Um, and so uh, that archive is, is, is one that's, um, that's really special. So I think your second question is, uh, was, was about kind of why, well, just even maybe play on the notion of rebellion versus riot oh, right, and right, the importance right. of the nomenclature. Right, right. Okay. So, so, um, so immediately, you know, in 64, when, when, uh, when Harlem rises up, you know, Johnson says, this is, this is, you know, this is a criminal act. This has nothing to do with civil rights. Uh, this is a riot. And, and in framing it as a riot, uh, policymakers respond as if, you know, these incidents are just fundamentally criminal and therefore the only response to these incidents um, is, is, is more police and more surveillance in, in the communities that are um, rebellion. But, the, but if, if, if you look at what we know that the participants themselves were saying, and we actually situate many of these rebellions in part as, um, as, as the, the outgrowth of a, of a lack of um, change as a result of nonviolent direct action protests. You know, there are histories in all of these communities. I mean, there's a national history, right, with the civil rights movement. This is rebellion also is occurring in a moment when uh, the Black freedom movement is becoming increasingly militant and groups like the Black Panthers are, are advocating for, you know, armed self-defense and, um, and a violent revolutionary, even in the Panthers case, response to condition, social conditions, material conditions that they see as violent. Um, so this is, you know, this is part of a, a, a kind of increasing sense among especially young Black people that nonviolent protests had failed to, um, to, to secure uh, jobs for people. I think what, you know, fundamentally that was what both the civil rights movement and, um, and the rebellions were about jobs, underemployment, unemployment, decent housing, um, educational opportunities and a, and a, and a well-resourced educational system. Um, and, you know, at, at, at base in some senses the, to not be treated like a second-class citizen. And I think for, for this new generation, the civil rights movement had not secured those, um, had not seemed to secure those aims. And, um, and you know, the grievances that, that communities had that, that led them to rebel were shared by the mainstream civil rights movement. Again, employment, jobs, um, an end to police brutality. And so in, instead of kind of in, in labeling this form of protest as something that's criminal, um, you know, and, and, and therefore uh, seeing kind of police policing or, or crime control as being the only response, you know, we fail time and time again to actually see the root cause of, um, of, of, of why people rebel in the first place. So that, that's one of the reasons why language is, um, is really important and why I think that, that calling, you know, the, the tendency to call these incidents riots, um, you know, both doesn't speak to the, the political mo motivations that many participants have that we know, um, you know, the demands that many participants made both during and after rebellion. Um, and it also prevents a different set of responses that would, you know, hopefully 
lead us to, to prevent uh, these incidents and um, and these interactions between residents and police from happening in the first place. I mean, I think one last thing that I'll say, and and um, and this was captured partly in the quote. I mean, you know, the rebellion in re the rebellions in the '60s and the rebellions that we see sprouting up and, you know, directly after that Safe Streets Act of, is passed in June 68, it are really in response to the policing of ordinary and everyday activity, which was a former strategy of the war on crime. You know, Johnson and, and other policymakers, as they developed the National Crime Control Program, premised it, you know, most of it on kind of future crime and potential criminals with the assumption that, you know, that, that certain communities are latently criminal and that the best way to prevent crime is to, um, you know, have police intervene or make arrests before it occurs. And so this leads to, you know, the, the, the over-policing of housing projects, the, the breaking up of gatherings and parties. And, you know, the initial response to that in Black communities as these new strategies were being widely implemented was to, you know, usually begin throwing rocks at the police officers and say, you know, no, we're not, we're not going to take this. Um, and over the course of the 20th century, it, you know, that the response uh, to that kind of policing ends up evolving. But I think, you know, this is a really, this, the story of rebellion is a really important way for us to think about how communities were respond, how, how community members themselves are responding to these new national law enforcement measures. Well, let's let's be very specific. A community that you know well and is familiar with people here, Cairo. And I mean, your account of it is utterly gripping, vivid beyond almost description. Tell us how you learned about this story and also how you pieced it together from <laughs> um, from your your research. Thank you so much for asking that question. Yeah. I'm so so what I will say about about Cairo too is that it's um, the depiction of, of Cairo in the Lemberg archive was really skewed. And so, I mean, just like much of the coverage of, of Cairo was. And so, you know, initially when I, when I came across um, the clippings in Lemberg, you know, it was, it was basically this armed group of, um, of, of black residents in, in, a, in a housing project in Cairo were, were going around and shooting up white people and shooting up the police station and, and doing all these things. And I, and I thought that was interesting and that was kind of unique um, in terms of, you know, the way that rebellion was both reported on, but also the content. And I also noticed that this was, you know, this was a, a sustained, this seemed to be a sustained um, uh, form of resistance. Um, and so then when I started doing more research on it, I realized that the story was much more complicated. Um, I was able to come across a, a really rich archive that that contained letters from um, from United Front leader Charles Cohen, who was a really kind of prominent um, freedom fi fighter in in, in Cairo, um, to the Urban League, and um, a, a pamphlet that was put together um, that that uh, that resident Robert Sutherland was involved in that that kind of depicted the the kind the protests in Cairo, that the boycott of white-owned businesses there. I mean, Cairo was essentially a town that was nearly, um, nearly majority black. It was, it was black, black residents were just under half of the population. And, and because of the way that, um, that political power uh, and, and elections there worked had, had no political power, had no, um, were locked out essentially of, of decent employment opportunities, any employment opportunities in the city, uh, decent housing, the city was segregated, and on top of it, um, you know, through the course of the 1960s, as Black residents in Cairo began to demand uh, rights, um, you know, in, in in all the arenas that we've been talking about, uh, the 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 forces of of white supremacy and vigilantism really rose there, um, you know, really mobilized in response, and um, and were deeply entwined with the police department to. Um, to kind of terrorize the community and even more. And um, uh, a coalition of organizations, um, many of them uh, religious organizations in, in Cairo um, came together under the United Front in the, in the late 60s and, and began to organize for economic power and also began to fight back. Um, and so, so in many ways, you know, when I really started to get into the, the resources on, on Cairo, and, and I will say too, there's a wonderful book that was, really helpful in, in helping me 
kind of figure out the terrain and that is um, Faith in Black Power by Carrie Pimblot. Um, and, uh, you know, when I really started to get into the history, it was just, it, it was, it's, it's, ha- it's, it's haunting to me. Um, it, it was haunting it, in, in many ways. It's in a, it's an American horror story um, of oppression and the ways in which uh, the white establishment in, in Caro's place, you know, essentially let the town, let the, the political and economic um, sectors of the town die due to their own racism. And so, you know, it, I just became fascinated with the story of the town because especially in the context, you know, as the site of, you know, both one of the longest boycotts in American history, black residents in in Cairo began to um, boycott white businesses downtown under the premise too, because they were being shot up um, by many of the white vigilantes nearly every night. Well, we're not gonna patronize these businesses so these white vigilantes can buy bullets to shoot at us and we're gonna defend our communities. Um, you know, that, that boycott lasted for a number of years, as did uh, the violence in, in, in Cairo. And so, um, you know, in many ways, it's this kind of exceptional example of racial inequality, um, the, you know, racial inequality, discriminatory policing, and the relationship between policing and, um, and white supremacist organizations is exceptional in many ways but it's also indicative and very reflective of the United States as a whole. And I think, you know, activists in Cairo at the time saw that struggle as being one that was both exceptional and deeply reflected. And I think um, it it seemed impossible for me to write this book without telling that really important story that I don't think um, has gotten. And even in my book, I mean, I don't, I, I haven't given that story it's fair shake, you know, Carrie Pimblatt's book is fantastic, but I think in many ways, uh, the story of Cairo was key to the US, understanding the US in the late 20th century and also understanding the forces of white racism. I mean, the fact that we, you know, some of the things that happened in Cairo were happening in the 1970s. I mean, that's part of what was, you know, people still in 1970s, you know, white people sicking German shepherds on young kids and, you know, literally just shooting up um, into black neighborhoods with impunity. You know, this was, I mean, it, it seems like it, fe- it felt like the 19, you know, 1950s Mississippi, um, but it wasn't. And I think we don't, I think we don't have a sense of just, and hopefully we'll begin to ask these questions now, I think, especially in light of January 6th, but we don't have a sense of just how pervasive and enduring uh, white supremacy has been and its relationship to law enforcement, which we see very clearly in Cairo. Well, in one story you tell too, I think it was in 62 when there was an effort to, to integrate um, maybe the, the, the public swimming pool and the owners basically closed it down, cemented it up, and you called it kind of a monument to racism. Right. And this is in, I mean, this is, you know, rather than, again, it, it really shows white resistance rather than actually, you know, integrate um the 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 decision on the part of of that business owner was was simply to close the pool and 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 the um the politicians in Cairo and state officials you know nobody was was really willing to 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 continue to fight to challenge that to keep it open so that was just that was what it was um and again this is happening in 62 schools in in Cairo don't integrate until the late 1960s and when they do um you know many white parents uh, take their kids out of the public schools and put them into Camelot. Again, you know, we think of like 54 as being that moment. And Carol, the story of Carol reminds us that, um, you know, it's a very long process and, and that uh, white, white families continue to resist. I mean, that story of pulling kids out of public schools and putting them into new private ones is, um, you know, is again, uh, we see, especially in um, in southern states, a response to forced integration in in the late sixties and seventies. It's interesting, Elizabeth. When reading your book, you see you know the country making so many wrong turns, and and you point out that there were some people who saw clearly a different way. And you, you quote Sarge Shriver, who was President Kennedy's. Uh, uh, brother-in-law who worked for President Johnson, writing a note to Johnson, basically saying, you know, the Negroes, uh, for all their destructiveness, I can see, but, but these riots is terrible calls. The Negroes want access to the fruits of participating in citizenship, the opportunity to both earn and to control their destiny. And then also the one good part of Illinois, one good part of Illinois was the Kerner Commission, 
that you know the former governor from Illinois put together that he was chair of that saw a different way that said if we invest in in quality of life that maybe we can address some of these urban ills. Talk about those missed opportunities. Yeah, and I'll also say you know with respect to to Caro the um the U.S. Civil Rights Commission holds a, a series of hearings that occur basically at the end of the violence. But this is like the only real intervention that people of Carroll get. And again, I mean, we see in all these commissions, and this is another thing that I deal with from the book from Kerner on down. I mean, Kerner is all obviously the most prominent one, but in the aftermath of rebellion, um, you know, either either local or state level human rights commissions, or in the case of um, places like Cairo, where there wasn't, where, you know, local human rights commission in that city did not exist and the state was not going to bring one there, the federal government intervened, um, you know, continued to emphasize socio the socioeconomic causes of violence and, and um, proposed a set of solutions. And last thing I'll say about Cairo before, um, Lewinda Kerner, but I think it is kind of a larger metaphor for the shortcomings of many of these commissions. You know, in 72, the, the Carroll Commission, which was which was chaired by um, a black woman who was the first, um, her name is escaping me, which is inexcusable, but the first black woman to serve on a on the um on the US Civil Rights Commission. And they basically said, okay, you know, first step that needs to happen here is the police department needs to formally distance himself from the from the white vigilante groups operating in this city, you know, while acknowledging the need for jobs and economic opportunities and integrated housing because public housing in Cairo in the 70s was still really segregated and, and the, the ways in which the um, opening of that private school I, I mentioned really drained resources from the public schools said first thing you know, we've got to cut this relationship between the police and the vigilantes. And, um, you know, by the mid seventies, even that step still had not been taken. So um, in many ways, like the Kerner Commission, these commissions, you know, tell us what's wrong and how to get out of it. And then people don't listen. And that's one of the most frustrating things. I mean, I will say, you know, I don't think now too, like the solution uh, to inequality, the inequality that we're seeing today is not another commission. We know what the problem is. I think we can go back to the Kerner Commission. The Kerner Commission had a really bold vision for what um, American society could be and should be and what domestic policies should look like. I mean, the Kerner Commission essentially said, the war on poverty is a good thing, but it hasn't gone far enough. And this is why in the context of the war on poverty, we're continuing to see the escalation of rebellion. What is needed is, you know, uh, a massive job creation program that's um, that's that's kind of advanced by both the public and, and private sector for um, low-income Americans and racially marginalized Americans in particular, and uh, a massive investment of resources, essentially like a Marshall Plan for American cities, that's going to help um, uh, make communities make under-resourced communities really really vibrant, uh, vital places. You know, basically, like if we want to stop rebellion, we've got to, uh, you know, give people the, the resources that they've been asking for. Um, and, you know, one of, again, the tragedies or ironies of, of, the, of the Kerner Commission's report is that, you know, it, it also included a number of police reforms, um, you know, some of them very progressive, some of them things that are still debated um, and not fully implemented today, different approaches to stop and frisks and, um, you know, citizen review boards and citizen patrols and all kinds of, of a, a, a public safety that really sought to involve community members um, and an emphasis on uh, the investigation of, um, of violent crimes and crimes that were directly, you know, harmful to people and property. It also, um, you know, in, in many ways upheld some of the logics of the war on crime. And so the only uh, recommendations that were actually implemented, the only recommendations of the Kerner commissions that went into national legislation, you know, were the ones about, were the ones that advanced another commission that Johnson had um, convened in the mid sixties, which is the crime commission's um, emphasis on new policing and patrol strategies in urban communities. So, um, you know, we we have known what the pro what the solutions are for a really long time, and again, I, I think in part in in refusing to really wrestle with the the broad the, the condition the violent conditions themselves that lead to rebellion, um, we have prevented our we have prevented this nation from seeing you know 
from, from seeing these bold solutions to inequality and violence um, outside of policing and incarceration. And that's one of the, um, the real, I think, tragedies of this moment and you know, why, we, uh, why, why cities in, in 2020 continue to burn. I mean, until we solve these problems of inequality, until uh, police and incarceration are no longer uh, kind of at the forefront of managing the consequences of poverty and inequality, we're going to keep seeing um, these incidents of police violence and we're going to keep seeing uh, communities rising up in, in anger and despair um, and frustration in response. I mean, not just to the violent incidents themselves, but to the, the inequality and the, and the racism um, around them. Well, let's talk about the current moment. In your book, um, your book uh, towards your conclusion, you know, brings us up to the the summer of 2020. Uh, you know, this massive outpouring of of outrage, and and um, you call it the largest social uh, justice movement in American history. Um, you know, and since you know, since in this last year, I mean, we've seen state legislatures, including in Illinois, pass criminal justice packages. Um, there's been a broader discussion of systemic racism. Um, you know, new Democratic president, Democratic majority in Congress passed a 1.9 trillion rescue act that some say has a kernel of a lot of really progressive policies. There's been articles about this new infusion of fun funds into historically black colleges. Well, how do all these come together in your mind as to um, where we are going? Yeah, so I mean, in some ways that remains to be seen, although I do think, I mean, it seems like the Biden administration is on a trajectory that's looking more like the approach to governance and social problems and federalism that we saw during the Johnson administration, which I think is um, is promising and important and we need it desperately in this moment. You know, I, I um, my students are always shocked whenever I tell them and it's true that, you know, like, Richard, Richard Nixon was the last, you know, like liberal president in some ways. Nixon was far to the left of Obama, um, you know, actually talked about a guaranteed minimum income. And, you know, Nixon is, um, I'm not a, like, I'm not a Nixon apologist. I'm not trying to celebrate Nixon, but, but that's the reality. You know, we have had this kind of this, this strong rightward shift that has led to all of these disinvestments from the very programs that we've been talking about that need to be um, invested in a real retrenchment from social welfare programs and, and, a, and, a, and, a, um, and a, a real withdrawal, frankly, of social programs and, and, and government programs from low-income uh, communities outside of uh, policing programs. So, um, you know, I think all of this and the, the you know, the, I guess that the, the Ill, illiberalism or, or illogic of mass incarceration, um, especially in a democracy and, and the resources, you know, the fact that in many states, um, Governments spend more taxpayer dollars on incarcerating people than on educating them. The fact that you know maintaining the largest prison system on the planet and a mass incarceration society has created a huge drain on resources and has exacerbated inequality. I mean, I think you know all of these things are kind of coming together um, in many ways in this moment. And you know, COVID in the context of COVID, because I don't think you know, I think I, I don't know. It's difficult. I mean, we can't right separate the the protests of 2020 from the context of the of the COVID uh, pandemic for for a number of reasons. But I I do think that you know that what COVID did was kind of um, uh, unmask and, and the disparities within um, you know those who are susceptible to the violent or to the virus and and treatment for the vi for the virus and the the kind of again the systemic racism within healthcare and within um, within the, the, the kind of employment economy, you know, who's working where, all of this, um, you know, COVID kind of unmasks this virus or is a virus that unmasks all these other viruses, including American racism um, that, that we're now kind of forced to confront and that the people um, have forced policymakers to confront in new ways by rising up against um, the very, 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 very blatant forms of injustice. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I uh, and this this Joe Biden 
uh, does figure prominently into a lot of my work and certainly in my first book as, you know, being one of the architects of uh, mass incarceration and the harsh drug policies that we saw enacted in the 80s and 90s. I mean, Joe Biden was a big, uh, you know, crime warrior um, and, uh, and, you know, was the sponsor of the 1994 crime bill, which is probably in it, you know, after the 1960, after the, the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968, you know, those two pieces of legislation by two um, Democratic presidents who are seen by many as liberal are like the kind of key, the two key pieces of legislation to helping us understand um, how we got here. The, 90, the 94 crime bill under Clinton, you know, really led to the explosion in prison populations that we saw in the 90s directly. And, you know, uh, Joe Biden was at the helm of that. So, um, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I, I do think that we, we we can no longer continue on the punitive path that we have been. We need a different set of investments. Um, we need uh, protection of our basic voting rights. I mean, I think that's like one of the things now, this isn't, I don't discuss this directly in my work, but I'm, um, you know, again, it's just related to um, some of the dynamics that we saw in Cairo that I write about in Cairo, you know, like what are white people, the links that the white establishment will go to retain their power and prevent, um, you know, racially marginalized populations from being to having access to the franchise and their basic citizenship rights. Um, we see this playing out again and again. And and so, you know, I, I, I hope that our elected officials who are committed to a kind of different, committed to democracy, first of all, and, and a different vision of what America is, um, you know, in, the, in this moment that's so necessary will help um, bring those necessary policies to the fore. Great. Elizabeth, we have a few questions that have been emailed in, um, and there's some great ones. We have Bill from Chicago wondering about historical data and evidence for how we treat people who've been incarcerated. I know you're really passionate about prisoner education. Um, you know, are there some models for what we can do to get these people, you know, to help them leave and to help them be on a strong path once they get out of prison? That's such a good question. And, and let me uh, first direct you to a, a new book that just came out that's really amazing. It's called Halfway Home. It's by Reuben Jonathan Miller, who's at the University of Chicago. Um, and he's kind of the, um, you know, one of the nation's ex experts, he's a sociologist, but on reentry and reentry programs. So if you're looking for a deeper dive, I think that's um, one book that is, um, that, that would be, you know, great for anyone who's interested. You know, I think, I think part of it, and this is true for, um, you know, bringing about the kind of changes I'm talking about, it's going to take a, 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 a real transformation in our worldview. And, and, and we're, part of it is, you know, rethinking our justice system as one that's based on repair instead of retribution, um, and believing that people who who harm other people or who commit crimes really deserve second chances, um, and that you know that we can provide people who have harmed others, many of whom are victims themselves, many of whom have been victims of um, of forms of harm or violence. Um, that we can provide them with resources that they need to actually um, be able to, 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 to participate in society in a different way and no longer cause harm. I mean, part of it is like breaking, breaking the, um, that, the cycle of harm, again, because so many people who have harmed others have, harmed, have been harmed themselves. And so, you know, like one approach that I think about is, um, you know, instead of, and, and this, um, is a more late is a later 20th century development, but the way that we responded to gang violence, you know, and and the kind of the idea of a super predator that um, really took off in the mid 90s during that crime bill moment. But you know, looking at like young 12 and 14 year olds, people like Colton Simpson, um, who was involved in the the Crip uh, gang in Los Angeles, who were, you know, essentially entrepreneurs and saying. Okay, you 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 clearly you know have a, a kind of business savvy and you're interested in things and you're doing math and all kind. So let's give you let's invest a set of resources in you, uh, so, so that you're not you know seemingly having to participate in in this informal informal economy and the violence that's attached to it. I mean, so much of it is just like how we respond to things, um, and how we respond to things in certain communities, like you know the response of. Um, 
opioid abuse in, in white communities as a public health problem, but crack abuse in black communities as a criminal problem. Um, so for me, part of, and, and as an educator and as an educator at a university, part of the, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I don't just do this work um, to have these conversations, I, although I, I really enjoy the, these conversations and they're really important to have, but I do this work to, to, to hopefully actually make change. Um, you know, both policy change in my research, but also, especially being at elite institutions like Harvard and Yale, how can I use the resources that I have to, to actually expand opportunities for people and, and deal with the problem of mass incarceration so that we can end it? I mean, that's, you know, one of the things. Mass incarceration, you know, I, I focus on federal policy makers in, in a lot of my work, but this is a problem that we're all, we've all been a part of creating. And so it's going to take all of us uh, to creatively use what we can to get out of it. And so one of the things that I'm committed to as an educator are um, our education and prison programs, expanding educational opportunities for people who are in prison and expanding educational opportunities for people once they're released. I think, you know, education is, is really important, um, especially for people who are in prison because, you know, even more than race, um, you know, edu the, the, the likelihood that you will serve time in prison at, at one point in your life is, is more deeply tied to education than anything else. So if you're a white man without a high school diploma, you are much more likely to go to prison at some point than a black man with a high school diploma. And again, in thinking about responses, you know, one way to look at this would be to say, oh my, okay, you know, we actually have a, an opportunity uh, for people who are incarcerated because this is, this is, you know, on the whole, the most undereducated group of people in our society. And let's actually take this opportunity to get them the education that, that they deserve so that when they come out, they can, they can find, um, they can come to understand themselves better. They, they can come to, to, to participate in our democracy better, and they can get a job that's going to fulfill them according to their interests. And so again, as an educator, this is one, this is one thing that I can do to help uh, our society deal with this problem and get out of it. Uh, Charles from Hoffman Estates asked to ask you to put the, the American incarceration system into an international perspective. Are there any other countries that are, you know, approach this in any any way resembling how we do it? No, the U.S. is is an outlier um, in every respect in 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 terms of our um, system of incarceration. We are, you know, no and no other industrialized nation incarcerates people like we do under the harsh sentences that we do, you know, especially in the late 80s and 90s, we, we really began to over rely on um, life without the possibility of parole sentences. And so the population of um, incarcerated people living under those sentences where they will never get out of prison is about 700,000, which is equivalent to the total number of um, the total number of uh, the incarcerated population in Japan. So that just, that, that kind of gives, gives you a sense. And again, you know, that decision to essentially sentence, uh, young, you know, men in their, in their late teens, early twenties, uh, to prison for life. And sometimes juveniles to say, you don't, you're irredeemable and never able to get out. Those are the people who now are in prison and more susceptible to COVID. That's another discussion, but so not only do we punish more harshly, and so it's not, and it's not just about how we punish uh, drug drug uh, drug related charges, but um, how we punish violent offenders as well, um, and it's it's also the conditions in in prison and um, and and you know the 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 way that kind of prison discipline and segregation in prison is structured, um, you know, really has and and is designed to dehumanize people rather than as we've been talking about to truly rehabilitate people. A lot of um, you know, we often look at uh, uh, the, the prison system in Sweden or Denmark um, or other European countries as, as kind of models. In some of these prisons, there are no uniforms. People can walk around freely. People can visit with their families and their children. These aren't uh, rights um, that are extended to people who are incarcerated in the United States. We have a number of questions, and this may be your next book on reparations, and particularly from Illinois, there was a package passed in Evanston in the last week or so. What, what, I know this is a huge topic and, and doesn't, uh, doesn't necessarily conduce to a quick answer, but what is your, your general sense of that? 
Well, I think it, I mean, that, you know, that question relates to what, um, you know, what's been, I think, a running theme through our discussion, which is that, you know, we need it. it, We we can't, uh, you can't like, and people say, this is the metaphor people use for affirmative action a lot. You can't like for somebody who started, you know, a mile behind, you can't expect that they'll finish the race at the same time. Meaning we have to invest resources in communities that have been systematically denied them for decades and centuries. Um, And so I think, you know, when I think about reparations, I'm not thinking about like an individual paycheck to people, but I'm thinking about a different way that we conceive domestic policies that account for um, injustices that various groups, you know, of course, not just black people in the United States have um, confronted. And that is going to take, you know, redistributing resources. That's going to take most likely, you know, re- um, completely changing our tax structure so that, um, you know, the, the tax structure in the United States, especially in the late 20th century, um, has has fell more heavily on poor and middle-class people than the rich and wealthy. And that's one thing that can change to help create, uh, you know, a whole new swell of resources that can go into um, poor and low-income communities that need them the most. So when, when I think about reparations, that's what I'm thinking about. Well, I have to ask you this question. I hope it's not too personal, but you seem like such a joyful, exuberant person who, you know, your research is in some of the most difficult and frankly, infuriating uh, topics one can imagine. I mean, you must have an amazing ability to compartmentalize. I mean, more broadly, I mean, how do you, and and I was struck by just your writing because, you know, I'm just thinking, man, how can Elizabeth write with such... um, it wouldn't be, I wouldn't say clinical, but it's just kind of a, a scholarly passion. I mean, you're obviously angry, but it's, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't distract your writing or it's not polemical. So respond to those questions. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm just, you know, and this like goes back in some ways to what we talked about in the beginning. I mean, I'm just, I've always been really passionate about injustices that I see. And I, I really, again, you know, I don't, I do this work with the hope that it, Will, will will lead to genuine change. And I think especially, you know, with, with both books, I mean, I, I, I wrote my dissertation, I finished my dissertation in 2013 and then Ferguson happened. And as I was revising my dissertation into the book that became from the war on poverty, the war on crime, I was just even more convinced that the work just needed to be out there. And so that just really fueled me. I think writing about these things in this moment has fueled me with with uh, with America on fire. You know, I had been sitting on the Lemberg ar- archives and these re- in this research for so long and kind of unsure what to do with it. And then after 2020 um, and the protests, it, it just became something like the first book that was kind of larger than myself. I had done the research, and it, it felt like it was so important. These stories were so important; they needed to be shared. And it was just something that kind of flew out of me passionately. I mean, I think. Too, with respect to America on Fire, um, you know, this was writing that book was the way that I coped with uh, with COVID and with the the trauma of the 2020 election. Um, so, you know, in some ways, I felt this urgency, like this was larger than me, and and really needed to be shared. Um, and and selfishly, it was I, I think uh, I think the passion in it is is. Is, is just kind of my my sense of um, and my frustration at everything that, that that's happened in the past year. Um, and, you know, my my greatest hope is that this work uh, will will lead to change. And, and that um, that inspires me. I have a, um, a two year old, almost two year old daughter. And, um, you know, obviously I, I didn't give birth to her till my second book was well out into the world, but she continues to inspire me. And, um, you know, I do this to make a better America for all of us, but especially for her and for my grand, my grandkids, I don't want her to, um, have to live in the America, uh, that I have and that we're seeing born today. And so what I can do, um, you know, my skill set that I can contribute to that is the research and the writing and the teaching. Well, let me ask you just as a writer question. I mean, like, do you like say for a first draft, just kind of cut loose and just, you know, say what's in you and then say, okay, in the second and third draft, I have to, you know, I have to put a different tone on it. Is that, I was wondering just mechanically how you do it. <laughs> yeah, I actually, that's, that's exactly right. I, um, I consider myself more of an editor than a writer. 
And so like, I, yeah, I just let it go and I let it, I kind of do stream of consciousness in the first draft. And then um, I just edit, 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 edit until I get what I want. And I think, you know, and I tell my students this all the time. I mean, you don't really know. It's so important to write while you research too, because I don't really, I can't really process my thoughts or I don't really know what I'm arguing until I've written it. Um, and so writing is just so, it's such an important part of, of how your mind works that, um, you know, that, that just getting it out there and then continuing to read it until I figure out exactly what I'm saying and exactly what evidence makes sense and exactly what stories to tell. Um, that's, that's kind of a longer process. I, I'm definitely not the person who like writes perfect sentences at first, you know, my early drafts are just for me. Nobody sees them. And, um, and if you did, you, you would probably laugh at them because some of some of it is really bad, but you just got to get it out there. It's like pulling teeth sometimes. Great. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation. And I'd like to say, you know, once COVID eases, we would be delighted to uh, have you come to campus and meet with students. I know community members here are aware of you and are deeply impressed with your work. And we could take a, a trip to Cairo and you can kind of show us what's happened and, and, and kind of a vivid field trip about just what has happened to this community and maybe what the way forward is. John, this has been such an incredible conversation. Thank you. And, and that would be a dream for me. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University. Simon Cass is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find Simon Cass wherever you listen to podcasts, including NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to new episodes as soon as they're posted and tell your friends about our show. For more information, visit paulsimoninstitute.org. Thank you for listening and thank you for keeping the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well.